Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. If you're new to Behavioral Grooves, we welcome you to the number one behavioral science podcast as voted by the readers of Habit Weekly. We explore the why we do what we do and discuss the applications of those behaviors with researchers, authors, and practitioners all around the world. And if the application of behavioral science is something that you're interested in, and we expect it must be because you are listening to this podcast... We're taking those conversations and packaging them into a one-day conference on January 8th, 2021, and we're calling it Nudge It North. This event will feature three fantastic fireside chat keynotes with Annie Duke, Robert Cialdini, and we're even facilitating a conversation with Gary Latham and John Barge together. The link to the register is in the show notes. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know, Gary and John are leading researchers in the field of priming. And priming is what happens when you get exposed to something and your behavior response happens without any conscious effort or awareness. It's like it's like putting an image of a runner winning a race in the watermark of a sales script for telemarketers. Now, the image was noticeable, but it really wasn't a big deal. And the salespeople who had the watermark on their scripts had more than 30% higher results compared to those salespeople who didn't get the watermark. Now, there has been some controversy around priming and replicating some of the results, but overall, there is an abundance of research pointing to its validity. And priming can be very powerful, as that last example just showed. And we think having the two of these fantastic researchers together is going to be really, really cool. It really is. And we haven't even gotten to our buddies, Annie Duke and Robert Cialdini. Now, they will help you rethink decision-making and persuasion in big, big, big ways. So just go to nudgeitnorth.com and register for the January 8th event. Absolutely, Tim. Now, we should probably get on to our guest for this episode. Okay. So Amy Buker is the Vice President of Behavior Change Design at MadPow and the author of Engaged, a book on how to apply behavioral science to the design and development of products. We loved our conversation with Amy. She really knows her stuff and her insights into product design are fantastic. We talked about motivation and the incredible power that idiosyncratic messaging can have on marketing and sales. We also discussed trust and how important it is for product developers and marketers to demonstrate that their customers can trust them. Yeah, and we also talked about how designers need to do a better job of integrating behavioral science into their products. Some are doing it, but there's lots of opportunity for improvement. Yes, there is, Tim. So right now, we invite you to sit back with a frothy draft of behavioral design and enjoy our conversation with Amy Buker. Amy Buker, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And I know you're excited about the speed round. Yes. <laughs> there you Let's go. go. Let's go. Okay. Let's go. Okay. So would uh, you prefer to travel on a set itinerary or no itinerary? A set itinerary, although I, I've come to like something that's a little bit in between. It was a negotiation when I got married because I'm a very like plan. Let's have, let's have an agenda. Let's follow the agenda. And my husband is very... We're on vacation. Let's relax. So we've met in the middle, and now I really like that. Oh, good. Bravo. Yeah. yeah. Compromise. It, it, it works, took people. years. It took <laughs> years. 
Okay. Listeners understand it's not something that just happens overnight, but it can work. It can work. All right. Um, dinner with your favorite behavioral scientist, actor, or musician? I think I'm going to go with musician. I have pretty easy access to behavior scientists. So, you know, I feel like I could okay. make that happen without it being a wish, but I, I very rarely encounter my favorite musicians anywhere. So I, I'm going to go with that. Anybody come to mind? I love REM. And so I would probably have dinner with Michael Stipe. Yeah. Michael, there you go. Fascinating dude. So yeah, why I would agree more. Okay. Other than engaged, we're taking engaged out of the running here. What do you think is the best new behavioral science book of the year? The best new behavioral science book of the year. Um, I guess new end of the year sort of is redundant. Yeah, no. And you know what is when you started talking, I was all ready with my answer. And then you said new and I'm like, oh God, I don't know. Um, I really What's your liked, answer with it's not new? I was going to say Super Better by Jane McGonigal, which is, you know, a couple years old now. And she's not really a behavior scientist, but she wrote this incredibly compelling book that uses motivational science exactly right. So I love that book and I, I give it to people often, especially if they don't have a behavior science background, because they can, they can get into it. They can understand it. Well, I haven't even heard of it. So that's what? fantastic. Yeah. I know. Oh, you've got to read it. I'm, it's on my list, list to go get now. Definitely yeah. Um, done. This year though, did Atomic Habit come out this year? I read that this year and I, I was regretful. I didn't read it earlier. So maybe not. I think it was 2019, but it was okay. probably, you know, maybe about this time last year. So within the year frame that might work. Well, if so. you let me cheat, I'll say that one because okay. I thought it was, um, you know, a lot of people have written books on habit and habit formation. And I thought his was really good and um, kind of reached a little bit further into the science and some of the others I've read to explain how, how habits happen. Yeah. And I mean, I James Clear, he's a, a blogger as yeah. well. So he's really skilled at communicating these concepts again to audiences who don't have a ton of background. And I just tend to love that kind of person. Yeah. I've been following him since he was just, you know, probably a few hundred followers on his blog. And he's, he's done a really great job of just taking this and really diving in deep, which I really love. And then bringing that back up, as you said, you know, he, he brings these concepts into, into ways that are just really simple to understand yet very deep in their, in their background from the, the science perspective of it. So, yeah. All right. So here's the important question. All right. Um, Skip to the end of a book to see if the character is still alive or live with the suspense of not knowing as you read. Did you, did you see me tweet about this the other day? (laughs) I'm not saying where the, I'm not saying where this came from. I'm just, you know. It varies with my anxiety level. I am definitely a person who will skip to the end and I don't, I don't read the end. I just look for the character name (laughs) so I can just have that assurance. Like, okay, this person still appears in the final pages. Uh, but I'm, I'm a high anxiety person and I love to read like murder mysteries and thrillers, like books where there's a lot of danger. And so if everything in the world is kind of putting me on edge already, sometimes I just need to know that my favorite character made it. Wow. If your favorite character isn't in those fast, do you just um, quit reading the book or is it? I only did that once recently and it was because the character in question was a child and I just, oh. I'm like, I can't do this. Yeah. So that book I, I put aside, but usually I will still read it. And then I just kind of emotionally prepare myself a little bit more. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so obviously there's a lot of uncertainty and, and stress and craziness going on in the world right now, uh, but you were just a poll inspector. So yes. did, did that increase your anxiety or was it a way of actually reducing it because you were, you were doing something and feeling like you were part of the process? 
So I intended it to be an anxiety reduction thing. And also, you know, I, I want to contribute more than just being a voter. And I kind of feel like I have a very small online audience and I'm not really a, a politics expert in any way. So I don't feel like I can necessarily win hearts and minds that way. So I thought, well, you know, I'll volunteer my time and work at the polls. And then it will also keep me offline most of the day because I'll be working. <laughs> You're not supposed to be on your phone. And in that sense, it worked really well. Like I, I really could not be on my phone. The time went very quickly. And I'll tell you what I loved is I haven't spoken to many people in person in eight or nine months. And I, mm. I was, we processed 1,450 voters over the course of the day and I worked the front door. So I got to talk to almost all of them. And it was just like, oh my God, people. <laughs> Uh, but there were things about it that I found stressful as well. Like there, there were, um, you know, a few people who came to the polls with the intention of making a bit of a scene and mm -hmm. that um, didn't feel great, especially being the, the lowest ranked poll worker. I kind of was the least empowered to do anything about it. You're really supposed to be like a polite, helpful, you know, worker bee in, in the role that I was in. So um, that, that was a little bit difficult. And, you know, there's some stress also in not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you're you're on the East Coast, right? You're you're in the Boston area. Yes. Uh, here in Minnesota, I just heard a report this morning that there was no disruptive act activity whatsoever. That was uh, zero, which is, which I was glad. But it's also Minnesota. You know, I mean, <laughs> people think the white fish is really delicious. So. Well, the, when I say disruptive activity, like nothing that would ever make the papers. Um, so we had a couple of small groups of people who came in. It was always um, Trump voters, actually. So. Um, just every time this happened at my particular polling place, they would come in and you're not supposed to wear any political apparel or, yeah. you know, anything like that. And they, they would be like all decked out and wearing Trump masks, which I thought was sort of interesting, given that, um, yeah. you know, I don't typically think of Trump's Trump supporters and mask wearers, but they did wear the masks and they'd be asked to turn their, you know, turn your shirt inside out, turn your mask inside out. And um, if, what they would do is they'd get in the booth and turn everything back. Mm. So then when they leave, like there's no consequence at that point, you can't you can't really say anything to them because they're on the way out and they're sort of parading by the line of people. And, um, you know, one guy standing just outside the door, like just outside our jurisdiction, um, screaming, nothing like nothing that would make the papers, but enough where if you're there all day and you're seeing it happen, it does ding you a little bit. Yeah. Huh. That is interesting. Well, before we talk about, uh, the, the book and, uh, and your work, uh, we should talk a little bit about the fact that you were listed as one of 10 behavioral scientists in Forbes magazine that need to be paid attention to. And congratulations on that first. I think it's a fantastic, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a fantastic accolade uh, and well-deserved, super well-deserved. How does it feel? It feels weird. It's, it really feels kind of surreal. I woke up one morning last week. I had an email from Aline who wrote the article saying, hey, just so you know, you know, I, I wrote this up and it's out in Forbes today. So I had no idea it was coming. And, um, you know, it feels really good. And I, I um, really admire the other nine people on that list. Some of them I know and consider friends and some are more just like people in the field who we haven't met yet, but I just love their work and have followed them for years. And to be included with with all those folks just feels really good. Well, uh, it is a really good group, and you definitely are well deserved to be within that group. So, so congratulations, and, and you know, it's uh, we're just excited because you know we get one of these luminaries on behavioral groups, so we're we're excited. Yeah, you know what? It turned out. I, so, Aline had interviewed me for Pattern Health earlier, and she linked to that interview in the Forbes article. So, of course, I posted on Facebook because yeah. I mean I'm in Forbes. I have to put it on all yeah. my all my platforms. Like that one doesn't get ignored. 
And I had forgotten that in my original pattern health interview, I talked about my grandfather. And so all of a sudden I'm getting these messages from my relatives on that side of the family, like grandpa's in like basically in Forbes by extension. (laughs) But that ended up being a really nice thing because it was an opportunity to remember, you know, think about him and spend some time with those memories. Um, He passed away in 2002. So, um, you know, it's just nice to, to have that little piece be a part of it too. Let's talk. Yeah. Oh, you have your own copy. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I've learned if I don't have the copy at hand, there, I've done some interviews with a person be like on page 317, you say, and I'm like, oh no, it doesn't even have 317 pages. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start with page three. So there okay. you go. <laughs> well, let's start with, uh, okay. So we're talking about engaged designing for behavior change by Amy Buecher. And we are so excited to just ask you, what do you want people to take away from reading the book? What, what do you think is, is the, like the most important thing that you hope that readers come away with? So if I had to pick one kind of lesson, it would be around motivation and the idea that if you want somebody to do something repeatedly over time, to have it be a new way of being for them, the only way to get them to do that is to have it align with something they care about. So we really need to understand what makes people tick We have to be comfortable with the idea that people are different and may have different reasons for doing something. And it's our job to, sometimes it's making the argument or making the persuasive case that this thing I'm asking you to do actually does fit your goals. And sometimes it's changing what we're asking people to do because our original idea isn't right for that person. Uh, But I, I think if I leave people with only one thing. It's this idea that motivation really matters and we need to find things that are very personal to people in terms of that motivation. So from a design perspective, how do you go about understanding what those motivations are and then tapping into those, as you said, they're idiosyncratic. So how many, how do you, how do you do that? How do you work within, within a design perspective for that? Yeah, so we try to come at it from a couple different angles. There's a lot of research in behavior science that helps us kind of narrow the window on the universe of motivation. So I say it's very idiosyncratic, but there are higher order categories that tend to apply to most people to some degree. So there's research on universal human values and and core values that shows that, for example, most people have some kind of value around family. Mm. Now, you you know that that looks different for different people as well as for the same person at different points in life. Uh, you know, think about when you have kids or, uh, you know, you get married, like your, your conception of family changes at those times. So if you know nothing else, you can construct your product, your experience. Um, I use the term intervention just to mean anything that a behavior change designer builds that's intended to change people's behavior. Um, so when you hear me say that, I really just mean your product. But when you're designing your intervention, one of the things that you can do that's really easy right off the bat is think about what are the ways that somebody using this might be able to connect more effectively with their family or be a better contributor to their family. Because if you can start to think about those things and write your content, for example, so that it implies, you know, have more energy for the kids at night, that's going to connect with a lot of people. You're you're right away um, playing some pretty good odds. But even better is if you can get more personal and dig in more on that idiosyncratic piece. So we do a lot of formative research for most of our design projects. Uh, Typically it's a lot of one-on-one interviews, in-depth interviews. We also do a lot of participatory design research where we have people engage in creative activities and make things because that's a way for us to tap into some of the emotional needs that sit behind their experience of a problem space. Um, And, you know, then we can do a little bit of extrapolation into what is it that really matters to this group of people that we can leverage in building our intervention 
And then once we build it, one of the things that I've loved throughout my career is the potential of technology to personalize in a scalable way. And so I've done a lot of work with, um, you know, back in the day, I don't, I don't even know if it's fair to call it, and I guess it is an algorithm. We used to write a lot of code that would essentially personalize people's experience in the interventions we were building. So we would have a, a pretty lengthy questionnaire they'd answer. And we had all this, if then, then this, and, um, you know, we, we could get fairly personalized in the output very quickly. Um, so one of the things I'm excited about now actually is machine learning and AI and how if those things are used ethically with a lot of good research behind them, I think that we can enable a lot more of this personalization around goals and ideas and motivation with technology. You mentioned uh, something that just really piqued my uh, curiosity, participatory design. Can you give us an example of, of how you would use participatory design? Yeah, so back in back in the old pre-pandemic days, we did this um, typically with in-person groups. It works really well with groups of people because um, I think because it's such a vulnerable set of activities and people ease into it more quickly when they see others in the room also doing it. Uh, we get a lot of good dynamics off of each other. And unlike a focus group, we're not as worried about them biasing each other's responses. But typically we start with things that are easy and help us to understand our participants. So an activity we use a lot is called circles of me. We, we essentially draw a bullseye on a canvas and the person is in the center of that. But then we ask them to use collaging materials or drawing or sometimes words if that's what's comfortable for them and outline the people, places, institutions that are most important to their daily lives in the circle immediately surrounding them. And then one circle out is sort of the, you know, still important, but maybe not every single day and so on until we kind of get out to the more nebulous, like community type aspects. And that helps us to see, you know, what, what are the people and places that make up the fabric of this person's existence? And it's also pretty easy for people to do. Where we ultimately try to end up with these is to get our participants involved in solutioning. So it's a way to involve users in the design process. And an activity we use a lot there that's extremely generative is called the magic button or the magic object. And we, we bring in like a Rubbermaid bin of crafting supplies, you know, cotton balls, they're all different colors and feathers and sequins and glue sticks. And we, ha we basically say, given the problem that we've been talking about today, like let's say it was, um, you know, wellness apps. I've done this for wellness apps where you get those things from your health plan or your employer and you're supposed to track your steps and track your weight and all that. And uh, nobody likes them and people don't really use them. So we spend the day kind of digging in on this problem and it's like, all right, we know that wellness apps are terrible. If you had a magic object that would fix wellness apps, that would make them not terrible, what would it be? And we really put a lot of emphasis on this magic. We don't want people to just, you know, redesign the screen and make it more usable, which is sometimes people's instinct. We, we want them to really think big because what we're looking for is not the solution itself. We want them to talk about it and we're listening for the themes. So with this wellness app one, like one person made a, a wearable bracelet that was shaped like a cat. Um, she used like googly eyes and pipe cleaners and stuff. And when she was talking about what it would do, she said, you know, when I'm getting lunch and I choose the salad instead of the pizza, it would purr and mm. let me know that I'd made a good move. And there were a couple, she was the only one who had a wearable cat, <laughs> but in listening to all the participants, one of the things that became really evident that's missing from the wellness experience is positive reinforcement. So you get dinged if you're not doing enough or if you eat too many calories, um, if you don't meet your goals. But typically you only get the positive reinforcement when you actually reach that goal. And that only happens like once a day. So if you're, you're supposed to get 10,000 steps, you get the little hooray when you hit 10,000 and then that's it. There's so much opportunity to build in more encouragement in that process and keep people engaged with it throughout the day. 
So we were able to take that insight that we heard from multiple people who made these, you know, kind of off the wall um, objects and actually build it into a product for our client. So that was, it, and it was really cool because they actually took that, did something with it and it's out in the market now and it's doing quite well. So a wearable cat bracelet that they have? <laughs> that would be cool. My, my daughter would like that. And actually my son would like that too. So yeah. no, but it, it's interesting when you talk about that from the perspective of gaining those insights from, you know, this ability for people to, to not have to think you know, sequentially, rationally, what's going to happen? This is the magic button piece. Is there an aspect of that that you think helps in this? Is there, do you do you run some where they, they tend to be more, you know, logical in their progression and then others where they get, they get bigger? What, what are the pieces that help in, in making that work? Yeah. So I, I, one piece is that we do this with many people for any given project, because just as you said, there's a, a real range of, first of all, comfort with the activity, but then people are different types of thinkers. So we absolutely, there's always one person who takes out a sheet of paper and like draws up a wireframe. And it's usually pretty good, but it's, it's not really what we're going for, which is not to say that we can't take some insights from it. And then um, actually that same group as the person who did the wearable cat someone made um, like took clay and made a heart. And she was like, the only thing you need is love. If you have, if you have love, you can, you can overcome all these challenges. And I hear that, but it's not, it's not giving us the detail we need either. So across a group of, you know, 10 or 12 people, <laughs> we get, we get that sweet spot in the average. Yeah. But you just kick them out. You just say, I'm sorry, there's no love here. Just get, get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, I did try to encourage her, you know, oh, can you show me how else love might look? Like, are there other objects that might help bring love into the experience? But she was like, no, this is it. This is the ultimate manifestation of love, this, this heart. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay. Oh. Uh, I wanted to ask you something. Uh, one of the things, uh, there's many things about the book uh, that really struck me because I spent a lot of years in uh, product marketing, product design. Uh, product development. But you, you noted that almost everything designers make has some behavior change built into it. And I think that that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic line. How, to what degree do you think designers are aware of that? I think they're more aware of it now than they've ever been, which is a really good thing. Um, when I started my career, I, I had to make an explicit case for most of my first jobs that I'm a behavior scientist and I should be, you know, I, I have a role in the design process. I think that wasn't something that people were really thinking of in, you know, the early 2000s. I think that there is some, where there is disconnect or misunderstanding or people maybe don't think of themselves as changing people's behaviors is designers often focus what's in the app or in the product. And they don't think about the context in which it gets used mm -hmm. and the context in which people's behaviors might change as a result of using it. Mm -hmm. And that is where there's more opportunity for them to think of themselves as people who are doing behavior change. Like there, there are certainly apps and products out there that are very transactional, like the behaviors that you're um, affecting do take place entirely on the screen. And it's you know totally appropriate for people in that case to not think about it. But so many of the things that we build, you know, they, the context in which they're used matters a lot. And it affects people's ability to interact with the content, to take that content and use it to do something in their lives. So, like I said, I'm seeing more of an awareness in designers that this sort of thing matters. But I think it's, it's still building. We're not quite at the peak where behavior change has uh, made its way into design yet. 
Well, there's there's some argument uh, within the behavioral science community that that maybe the best uh, future of behavioral science is for it not to exist as behavioral science, that it's completely integrated into design, into marketing, uh, HR, you know, all these different uh, kinds of corporate functions. It, it, do you agree with that? I haven't actually heard that argument, so I need to digest it a little bit. Um, my my like gut instinct is to say that from an academic perspective, it still makes sense to me to have it exist as a standalone because um, you know getting the training in a pure psychology perspective, I found incredibly valuable, and I think that it um, equipped me with a, a type of rigor that would have been more difficult to get from, like I don't know, a psychology focused human resources education. So you know, thinking about academics and also the way academic research is conducted, I could see some advantage to still having the various behavior sciences stand alone. Um, but yeah, on the job, I very much feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a blend. I'm, I'm not really a designer on its own and I'm not really a behavior scientist on its own. Like my career is a blend of the two. And uh, I have friends from grad school. I actually have several friends from grad school who are in HR because my PhD is in organizational psychology. So Several of my friends have gone on to work in human resources teams in some capacity, and they really are working as human resource professionals. So, yeah, I, I think for the on-the-job part of it, that I could go with that. Yeah, very cool. You, a lot of the book, um, you know, lots of different great components in here, but one of that struck me was that you have a whole section on trust and how important trust is. Um, in this. So why why is trust so important in the design process? And then, uh, you know, how can designers increase it? Yeah. Um, and I had to kind of push to have that trust bit in there. Because um, I, and I get it, the pushback I got was it feels a little bit like moralistic. And um, some of the content in there is repetitive of content elsewhere in the book. You know, I basically talk about techniques that we can use for one purpose, but then here's how they also support the building and maintenance of trust. But I really, really feel that it's critical to um, develop trust between the product and users and then to maintain it. And it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while now because, first of all, I've worked in health for most of my career. And it's um, just such an important area for people's lives. Like your health data, it's incredibly personal. It's incredibly consequential. And if it's misused, the consequences to you could just be huge. So it matters a lot that it's that data is treated well and that you as a user understand that it's treated well so that you can interact with the product to its fullest to get the benefit out of it. That's one of the big dangers is when people don't trust your product, but they're somehow required to use it. And that actually happens a lot. You think about like going to the doctor and they have chosen an electronic medical record system and all of the attendant apps and you know interfaces and you're kind of stuck using what they chose for you. Um, so, you know, as a user, you can't just exit and pick something you like better. But if you don't trust it, you might not be putting your data into that accurately or completely. And then that limits the ability of your clinicians to use it. Or if there's any kind of other functionality that's in there, you may be preventing that from working properly. And, you know, then here you are without the help that you could have received. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that is really true that I think people don't think about, there's a focus in the digital world on driving short-term metrics. Mm. And I, actually I'll broaden it. It's just the US business world. It's like you report your quarterly, <laughs> your, your quarterly returns and um, that matters a lot. And so we, we have this short-term focus that means that sometimes in design, we're driven to do things like, let's get as many users as fast as possible. Let's get as many logins, as many clicks. 
But the things that you can build into your product to get that kind of high usage early on, those early success metrics are not necessarily the things that build and maintain trust. And so we see situations where you have a product that gets really popular. A lot of people join it. It's fun. It's engaging. It's been built with all of these different uh, you know, cognitive biases in mind so that people just want to keep clicking. And then they find out three months down the road that it's like selling their data to, to Russia. And <laughs> yeah. um, so good. I mean, and I, I think Facebook is very lucky that it is so huge because it's difficult for people to abandon it. There's no really good alternative. Um, and the the secret sauce to it is the community. So everyone would have to leave en masse for it to flounder. But, you know, if Facebook were smaller, nobody would use it after some of that stuff. And even the people who do use it tend not to trust it now. It's It's really, really hard to regain that trust. And so it's more important, I think, to never lose it. So what are some of the things that designers in taking that design perspective in play, what, what do they, what do you take into consideration when you're building a product or an app that has to, to increase that trust? Yeah. So one thing I talk about this in the book is actually thinking about some of the copy that's in your product or website, like the terms of service, the legal stuff that isn't really interesting for most designers, but um, is important in terms of communicating to users what will happen to them and their data if they use your product. And, uh, you know, I worked for Johnson & Johnson for a number of years, which is a behemoth company with a lot of legal and er basically every word of copy that goes out the door to an external audience at Johnson & Johnson has to be reviewed by their copy clearance committee, CCC, which has um, legal, regulatory, medical, and compliance. Yeah. And they need to make sure that everything is all buttoned up from every angle. Like they, they want to limit liability and make sure that that content is accurate. What happens in the as a result of that process is the content tends to be really like long and it's in big words and jargon and tiny text, like all, you know, you've read this stuff. We would do research with our users when I was at J&J &J, and we would hear from them like, I'm not using this product because you're probably just going to give my data directly to my doctor or directly to the human resources manager at my company. Um, we, we had a B2B model, so they were receiving access to the product through their health plan or through their employer. And that wasn't the case. And we did say that in the legalese, but we said it in like paragraph 37. You know? Section C, subsection 2A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did some work where we found that if we basically created a TLDR section at the top that was, you know, very plain language, like here's the stuff you need to know, uh, that really reassured people because they could read it and they'd be like, oh, okay, my data is just going into a big old database and like, it's never going to be pulled out and looked individually. Uh, we did not get full support to put that TLDR in the actual product that went on the market, but the research we did with it was really reassuring. I think the company that actually has the best legalese is Pinterest. They've done an awesome job at designing it in a way where it's like scannable, it's easy to understand, and they do have that sort of like, here's what our lawyers told us to put, and here's what you, the consumer, are going to understand out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't paid any attention to that, but I think that that's a that's a terrific idea. And even the 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 fun part about that, right? Hey, this is what our lawyers are saying, but here mm -hmm. here's how you actually understand this and what it implies for you, because yeah, because yeah. we all know lawyers speak in a whole different language that is pretty incomprehensible for most of us, right? So yep, right. yeah. So you say that the gold standard uh, in behavioral uh, design is the RCT, the Random Control Test. Uh, mm -hmm. How often are you able to get clients to agree to RCTs? Almost never. <laughs> Almost never. Thank you. I was I was thinking we were doing something wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. Almost never. And um, so I I 
collaborate with some of my former, like I basically have this working group of people that I've picked up through my career. And one of the things that we talk about sometimes is actually this RCT thing and like how important is it? So, I I mean, if you want to establish um, without a doubt that the thing that you have built is changing outcomes in a certain way, the RCT is like the way to do it. But really what we're typically trying to do with these outcome studies is to understand the effect that the product would have in the real world because people are using it in the real world. And so more often we'd see something like an effectiveness trial where you give it to some people, you don't give it to other people, you just let them kind of live their lives with the product and you can see differences over time. And that I think for most commercial products tends to be good enough. The um, only times I've really been able to do RCTs in my career are actually when I was with Johnson & Johnson, because given the type of organization they are and the types of products they work with, they do need that kind of data. If you're doing anything that's sort of like medical or goes on the body and has the potential to do harm that way, um, you, you do kind of want that gold standard data. And they um, would also do that for behavior change products, which was awesome. Like I, I built a product that was in an RCT for, um, it, it was a, for insomnia, for insomnia and sleeplessness. And J&J ran an RCT and we found that it was more effective than a sleep diary starting at week three and improved all of these outcomes really dramatically. Like it was, as a product person, it felt amazing to have that caliber of data about something I'd built. But I think that's really the only time I've had that. <laughs> It is interesting, right? I mean, the the idea that companies don't want that data, um, and I and I get it, right? It it adds an extra layer that sometimes can take a really long time. Cost is is part of this, but we also, I mean, at least in my experience, I hear that this this idea that you know you're particularly we do I do a lot of work with employee bases, right? So we're working with the employees. And so in RCT kind of is invariably there's going to be some unfairness within mm-hmm. it because some are going to get the treatment and some aren't. Um, and so they were going, we can't do that because that's unfair. And if anybody ever finds out, we're going to have that. What, what are the big issues that you see? I mean, what are what are you hearing? Like, why won't companies do do those types of things? A lot of it is time-based. So, you know, I mentioned there's this focus on short-term and I think it carries over to outcomes as well. Uh, What our clients are usually open to is some kind of, we call it either usefulness or desirability testing. So we do our usability testing to make sure that people understand how to use the product and it's functional, but we also do a layer of research to understand if it's meeting people's needs, is this actually kind of solving the problem space it was intended to, do people like it? Hmm. Um, And that tends to be the level of evidence that our clients are interested in before something goes on the market. I I think they have a mindset that they're going to collect the data on its efficacy in real time just for people using it, more of a case study type of method. And it's just time. It takes, you know, a good RCT takes a few months to set up and run and analyze the results from. And that's just time that people don't want to spend. They're eager to get out to the market. I did a project with Dan Ariely a bunch of years ago with with a global fifty telecommunications firm, and uh, we, you know, we thought this is going to be the gold standard, right? Where it's their people, it's it's all interfocused, it's it's all focused right on them with all the right things that they agree to upfront. And we get to the end, and we we uh, reveal the the data and make our recommendations, and they say, no, we're not going to we're not going to make the change, we're not going to do anything different. We're 
do things the same way. And of course, Dan said, Dan's response was, well, people are irrational. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I I say to you, like, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way because it makes sense, but a lot of times the business client that we have is not somebody who's trained in doing scientific studies Hmm. and they don't have the appropriate knowledge to evaluate, uh, you know, what is the right approach and and how do they interpret the results? We did a study for a client a while back. It was, um, a, a, a quantitative study, and we found no, null results, which you know when you set up and run a study is a possibility. And that does give you information. We learned something from that study. And we had to sit down with the client and say, could you please stop telling everybody that the study failed? Like, that's not the word. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it is interesting when when we think about that. I think that's it's actually an interesting piece of just society, at least the American society from my perspective, is that we do not do a really good job of teaching people the scientific principle and how studies work and that the ideas of, you know, this is how science progresses. So if you don't find anything, that's that's information. It's one piece of this puzzle that now we know. And so that isn't a failure. It just means that now we have this different piece of information. And I think too many times, I think people look at science in general without really understanding the nuances that go into it and how how then it, it can impact what happens on the on the back end of, of those kind of factors. So Yeah. And I, I would say the way that this hits my life as a consultant daily is I, I can see on people's face how frustrated they get, but they'll ask me like, oh, you know, what what would be the effect of loss aversion on this this choice architecture I'm building? And I'll say it depends. And I can see their faces fall, but it's like, it does. It depends. And I, I would be doing a disservice to my training if I told you otherwise. Yeah. Well, you talked about earlier, you said context matters, right? And so the, the usability of things may change because of the context. And and we know that very, uh, you know, real from just looking, hey, even if this uh, intervention worked fantastic with this company or this consumer set, it, you can't just t- pick that up and go, all right, it's going to work exactly the same when we put it in this, because the context might be, it might only be slightly different, but that slightly different part can make a huge difference on on how people interpret it and use it and, and behave thus. Right. Well, and you know what we're seeing now? Coronavirus. That that has changed the context on all of us pretty dramatically. And I, I mean, I, I wish it hadn't happened. If I could pick, I would not have <laughs> not have a global pandemic, but it is a great way to illustrate this point that yes, context matters. And now you can see yourself. You are in a different context than you were in in February. And look at all the ways that your life and the way that you interact with products and people has changed. In, in the book, you made a statement that I just loved seeing in print that behavior change is hard. It's like, oh, yes, thank you so much for saying that, I just for, for, for writing it. But I had to admit that when I read that, I was wondering, which is harder? Do you think, is it harder for the designers to create the, the, the product in such a way that urges behavior change? Or is it harder for the consumer who's using it to make the change? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, that was a perfect uh, answer. Oh, love oh, it. Um, and I say it depends because different behavior changes are differently difficult for people. Um, I, I, you know, research is me search. And, uh, you know, thinking of myself, 
I, I've spent a lot of focus in my adult life on trying to like live a generally healthy lifestyle, like being physically active and eating reasonably well. And I found that, um, for me being active is not that difficult. Like I, for whatever reason, I enjoy physical activity. I'm not like a fabulous athlete or anything, but I like it enough and I can make myself do it. And I don't need to pull a lot of levers to have it happen. But eating well is really difficult for me because I just, I love food. Um, <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy trying new foods. It's a really social thing. I like to cook. I like to bake. It is, the cards are not set up for me to, uh, you know, eat a salad diet all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a case where for me as a consumer, there are certain behavior changes that are really much harder than others. I, I think as a designer, the challenge is, more of a mindset around understanding that you're probably never going to build an intervention that works for everybody in every context. It's, you know, building something that works for the users that you have identified as being the right ones for this particular intervention at this time. And I get really excited because I like to work on things and I like to always have more projects coming up, but I get excited by this idea of building a toolkit for people. You know, you don't build one, one app or one product that's the end-all be-all for all time. You build a, a whole series of them and people can pick and choose among them the ones that work for what they need right now. I really like, um, the, the metaphor I use a lot is there's the Couch to 5K app. Um, once you run a 5K, you do not need to keep using that app, but the Couch to 10K app is ready for you. And I, I like to think different that way or about other sorts of interventions as well. Like what is the Couch to 10K for this particular app? Hmm. So what do you see? I mean, do you, do you see that happening more that these toolkits kind of this thinking and, and how that, hey, this is customizable based upon where you are? Is that getting more traction? Is it is it still at its nascent kind of part or is it, you know, starting to become a teenager and, and moving past that? Where, where do you see that? I think it depends who you talk to. So for designers, I think this idea is getting traction. And I, I mentioned before, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, these sort of very scalable, um, you know, ways of interacting with data. I think those are adding traction to the idea of maybe not having multiple apps, but having an app that's very customizable within itself so that you can almost have entirely different experiences as your, as your situation changes. I see designers and product people getting excited about that and getting more into those technologies. On the client side, because I, I work with a lot of these sort of large organizations, I don't know that they're caught up to that yet. They still mm -hmm. have oftentimes an idea of, you know, we have one, one app for everybody, for everything health related. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's going to take a little catching up, I think. Okay. Interesting. Uh, one of the things I loved about the book is that you close out um, each uh, chapter with a perspective. And I just think it's so, and that you did not write, that uh, these perspectives are written by uh, other people, um, uh, researchers or practitioners, a uh, variety of different roles that they take. What led you to include that? I really wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me talking in an echo chamber. So um, for each of those interviews, I chose somebody who I consider an expert in the topic of that chapter. And in some cases, they're people that I already had a relationship with that perhaps I'd learned from. So Vic Strucker is an example. I interviewed him about meaningful choices. I worked for a long time for the company he founded, Health Media, and it's really where I um, cut my teeth on motivational science in the way that I use it today. So I'm like, if I, if I try to speak for this content and I don't include Vic in some way. I'm doing a disservice to, to my readership. 
And I also really wanted to make sure that I was including examples and applications that aren't in my own work experience because mm -hmm. I've been so heavily in the health field, but I think behavior change design is applicable really across any context. So like Diana Diebel, for example, who I, I talked to, she um, did some B2B work making employee performance management systems. And that was the only way I was really able to include that as an example in the book, because those are typically not available to evaluate as a third party. So it's like, all right, this is a really important thing. And I, I know like a super smart person who's working on this stuff. Like, I wonder if she'll let me talk to her and interview her for this book. Um, and some of it, honestly, I'll, I'll tell you the selfish part. Some of it was having an excuse to talk to people that I really admired. <laughs> like there's, there's a few people that I met because I interviewed them for the book. Uh, I was able to kind of beg, beg and borrow introductions and um, get to know them. And that was really awesome. Yeah. That's a good reason to start a podcast as well. Just FYI. Yes. So there you go. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about music? That, yes. That's a, that's a cool <laughs> you want to talk music, Tim? Come on. I know it's 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 a strange idea, but um, since we are called behavioral grooves, okay, it might not just be the grooves in our mind. It might actually be about grooves in a record. I wanted to ask, what's on your playlist? Do you have a COVID playlist? Are, are you listening <laughs> today that you weren't listening to before? I'm not listening to, well, I'm always trying to add new things. At some point I read that, you know, once you turn 35, I think it was, you stop liking new music, like your musical tastes are set in stone. And that terrified me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm past 35 now, but I've made an effort to try to listen to new music. Um, I use Spotify a lot and I do listen to those like recommended for you playlists, but I've kind of screwed myself because I listen to music when I work out. And I, I mentioned, I like working out. Um, one of the ways that I make it enjoyable for myself as I listen to my workout playlist. And it's full of things that I recognize are not musically great. Like there's a lot of Britney Spears on there. <laughs> a lot of 80s songs, uh, a lot of Robin. I love Robin. Um, and it's like, I do have better musical taste than that, but the majority of the songs I listen to are going to be in that, like, you know, high beat, like upbeat, get your body moving to it. Yeah, well, if you're working out, I, I there's no reason to to try to defend you know some Britney Spears when you're working out. That that's okay. What about when you're not working? But, but, but hey, before we go on to that, I mean, what is wrong with Britney Spears? I mean, oh, she was a mega selling artist. Lots of people love her music. It's it's and so you might be a musical snob, Tim, but you know there are people out there who are looking or listening to this and going, "This is good stuff." And so don't I would not no like I love when I'm on a run and Britney Spears comes on like yeah. I just, I recognize that it's not like, you know, it's, it's musical candy, not musical broccoli. <laughs> oh, I like that quote. All right. So the other thing though, that I do find myself listening to a lot is um, kind of like nineties, early two thousands rock music and Britpop, which is the stuff that I was listening to when I was in college and then modern music that reminds me of it. So I recently started, I created, um, it's one of those radio playlists, you know, so you don't pick all the songs, but you pick sort of the anchor song and then it selects things for you that are similar. And I set one up that's around, um, there goes the fear by the doves, which is a song from the late nineties that I just love. And I, I find that playlist does a really great job of kind of hitting the vibe, loved pulp back in the day, like had all their albums, including all the bootleg ones from Japan and stuff. And so every now and then I'll throw on a pulp album and wow. just love that and then one that i've discovered recently that i really like it's very moody and atmospheric is um, manchester orchestra 
Yeah. So I listen to them quite a bit. Who, try to- who else? Somebody else the, talked about Manchester Orchestra on, on the show. I can't remember who, but yeah. So. And can you listen to music while you work? Do you like to listen to music while you work? I love it, but I can't. I get distracted by it. I'll tell you, when I was in college, I remember, it was like my sophomore year of college, maybe. I decided I wanted to try to listen to more music when I worked, but I even then got distracted by it. And I thought, I know, I'll listen to music that I don't know because I can't sing along. You know, I can't. <laughs> so I bought um, Depeche Mode. I bought the double Depeche. Depeche Mode had just come out with their greatest hit CD, the, du- the double album one. I can't remember what it's name. It has like the really cool neon cover and put it into my 50 CD CD player. <laughs> and by like the second play, I knew the songs and I'm sitting in my seat, like grooving to the Depeche <laughs> Mode, not paying attention to what's on my computer screen. So no, I can't unfortunately listen to music when I work, but I like to listen to it when I'm in the kitchen. So if I'm cooking or baking, I'll, I'll throw some music on. And then when I go for walks, I used to commute by foot and by train. Now I just go for aimless walks in the neighborhood. <laughs> but I listen, I alternate between podcasts and music then. Yeah. Well, Depeche Mode has that ability to, to be, draw you in right away. I will, I will be the, the Depeche Mode uh, uh, aficionado here. So yeah, I love Depeche go. Mode. Yeah. Now, now I do. At the time, I didn't really know them, but now I love them. <laughs> was, was it the double album that, that was the catalyst for getting you into it? Or? Yeah, well, I'd heard some of their songs. Like, I don't think you, you grow up in the U.S. and get to 1999 without hearing, like, Personal Jesus. But yeah. um, I, I wasn't familiar with most of their music and so for me yeah that was the introduction to a lot of the songs that now i really like well thank you uh we all we have is gratitude for this time that we've been able to spend with you and have this conversation it's been so much fun amy thank you thank you yeah this is really fun for me too i was nervous about the music i knew you were going to ask that and like i said i I listen to a lot of workout music i'm like they're going to judge me Tim may judge. I will never judge anybody on their music because I am not anywhere close to, to, to being that. So so there you go. Um, but it was fun. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Amy, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our differently motivated brains. Ah, differently motivated. Idiosyncratic, huh? Idiosyncratic. That's the term I should have used. You should have used it. Damn it, Tim. You should do these intros. It's all about idiosyncratic fit, isn't it? Idiosyncratic fit. A, first off, I just love that word, right? It sounds so... (laughs) Compass and whatever else, but it, it's it's actually a really interesting word. And I know we've we've done a lot of research, or we haven't done a lot of research. We we reference a lot of research that uh, Ron Kivitz does on idiosyncratic fit yeah. in motivation and and various different pieces. So it, I've I've loved it since you introduced it to me many 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 years ago. God, don't don't. Put that many's in front of it. It sounds. Yeah, it was sounds, many, sounds, many, sounds, many, sounds, many, 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 many years oh, ago. God, it makes us sound so old, though. Okay, so yeah, and you know, Ron Kivitz. I'm going to put Ron in the show notes because Ron Kivitz's work at Columbia on idiosyncratic fit is fantastic. Yeah. So just just a, a call out to Ron. But but that goes back into the conversation that we had with Amy and this idea that motivation 
matters, right? The only, as, as she said, the only way to get them to do that, basically change their behavior, is to have them align with something they care about. So we really need to understand what makes people tick. We have to be comfortable with the idea that people are different and may have different reasons for doing something. That sounds just like Amy. It is just <laughs> like Amy because I quoted her. That was a quote. Yeah. Uh, how true. How true, right? So the so the better we can align with with the reasons that we have, uh, the better off the motivational messaging will be. And the first thing that struck me was uh, it reminded us of reminded me of our discussions with Andy Luttrell. Mm-hmm. Right on on the moral foundations of why we believe in something. Right, he gave right. He gave the example of the vegetarians. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, two vegetarians. The, one doesn't eat meat because they don't like the taste. One mm-hmm. doesn't eat meat because they want to. They they feel it's cruel or they want to save the planet. Two very different reasons, and so uh, you know, his, for, for, his, the for the same behavior, for exactly the same behavior. Yeah. And, and you think about that, you think about all of the different reasons that people could have a behavior. And so if you look at people doing something and understanding that, well, look, everybody is brushing their teeth or everybody is using our product to do this. Well, if, if looking at just the behavior doesn't give us insight into what's going on behind, you know, the skull, right? And in that brain and the motivation of why they're doing that, which can have significant impact on what a company needs to do, right? Are you marketing to that person because they don't like the taste of meat or are you marketing to that person because they want to save the planet? Those are two very different messages and one will work with one group and one will work with the other. And sure, there's probably crossover, but overall you have to understand those different components of it. Yeah, uh, it, w- it it also reminded me of something that goes back to the the '90s, late '90s, when um, Martha Rogers and Don Peppers developed the one to one marketing, where they started many, thinking many, about many, 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 many years ago. <laughs> I guess got it. it. Okay. But but the idea was that that they started wondering if we had the technology, would it be possible to orient our messaging so that an individual could actually get a message that appealed to them very specifically so that the message that went to Kurt would be different than the message that went to Tim, because we might have different motivations or different moral foundations or different, different rationale. Um, it also makes me think, and, and we can get back, we can come back to that in just a sec, but I was just thinking about uh, a, a story that I read about McDonald's, how a, a bunch of years ago, they noticed that people who were doing going through the drive-through in the morning during breakfast were buying shakes, and they thought, well, that's really kind of weird, right? Why why buy a shake when you're going to work? What's what's the point of that? And what they found is that a shake lasts a long time. It's kind of cool and creamy, but it lasts a long time. And so, if you're in a long commute, you've got something to you know, kind of suck on and put in your mouth and enjoy the flavor of for a long time. And that's what led them to to develop. Uh, you know things like the lattes and and the the cool uh, yogurt based drinks and uh, dessert like things that we would think of later in the day for breakfast for the purpose of breakfast. So it really influenced. So actually looking at people's behaviors and understanding why people were buying the the shakes in the morning 
led them to better um, to better product development. See now, uh, I'm, McDonald's should be glad that I wasn't working there at that point because <laughs> I would have just said, "Well, duh, of course you have a shake. It's ice cream, morning, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner is totally understandable. I have no idea why anybody would even question why people were buying shakes in the morning. That is." A totally plausible thing to do. So, <laughs> All day, every day. <laughs> every, every meal should be ice cream in some form or manner. I mean, if we could do that, I would be in heaven. That would be awesome. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but you bring up a really good point. All kidding aside, this idea that understand, like being able to then extrapolate out from what people are doing to look at the reason behind it can lead us to some creative solutions for problems that we may not even know exist otherwise. And that I think is really cool. And it's what Amy's talking about, right? It's, it's using behavioral science in the this product development and, and, and a key piece of that behavioral science is understanding the motivations and really getting at those underlying drives and not just the surface pieces that, that come into that. So Right. She also talked about participatory design and how there it, it's not that all consumers are going to be able to envision what the next product should look like, right? This goes back to the Henry Ford thing of, you know, if you'd ask people what, you know, what they wanted in 1910, they would have just said faster horses. They wouldn't have dreamed of yeah. cars. Well, and, and you look at Apple and all the things that Apple has done uh, in some of the innovative things that they're doing. And, and Steve Jobs was a huge, huge, you know, talked about like, hey, focus groups, et cetera, are, are, don't really tell the whole story. And so you need to go beyond that. And you can't just you can't rely upon those types of research methodologies in order to be cutting edge and creative and bring th things to the market that the market isn't even realizing that they're needing. So, yeah, but our, our friend Adam Hansen at Ideas to Go, he would remind us that there are some consumers that are creative consumers that can think beyond. And so, if you if you put the time and effort into finding those consumers, there's a, at least a good chance that you might engage them in a conversation that could lead you to innovation and cool designs in the future. Well, and and I think Amy is talking about looking at, you know, getting people to be integrated, getting those consumers and customers to be integrated into the design so that the designers yeah. are understanding their mindset, right? So that they are being being part of the lived life of this. And this gets into, you know, the experts curse, right? Where you as a designer have worked so hard on this and for so long that you understand how this app works or this product works or various different pieces. But, you know, that consumer who comes in at the, who hasn't had that experience, that history doesn't get that. And so what you think is right. very intuitive, they don't. And it's really bringing that mindset back in. And I think that is really a key piece of what uh, I think Amy is talking about here. That links perfectly over into something that I wanted to groove about. And that was uh, when we talked about how all products have some kind of behavior change built into them. And, and when she brought that up, it got me thinking about a snow shovel that I bought a few years ago. Okay. 
okay, so this may this may be a little weird, right? But if you All live right, in so a- everybody who's who's down south or you know, some <laughs> snow shovels are these things we use in Minnesota <laughs> when it snows to clear off our driveway and sidewalks. Yes, it's a very important tool to have uh, living in a, in a place where there's a lot of snow. So uh, snow shovels have looked for many, many years like regular shovels, like the kind of shovel that you would use to to dig in the dirt. It's many, a stru- many, 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 many years. Is that right? <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> We've probably got thousands of years of shovels looking the same way. Straight handle, you know, with some kind of a, 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 a bucket. Or Wide, a flat, spade. you know. Um, yeah, at, at the bottom. That. Yeah. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, I went to buy a new snow shovel and they offered a product that had a bent handle, sort of a zigzag looking handle. And I and the the people at the store said, Well, this is supposed to be better on your back. And I'm like, Well, actually, that sounds like a good thing. So I thought, well, for 15 bucks, I'll just try it and bring it home and give it a shot. And what it required of me instantly was a behavior change. I had to shovel differently because I wasn't as bent over uh, with the new one as I was with the old style, with the straight handle, with the with the, st- the straight shaft. I had to bend over more. I had to sort of, I really had to put more effort into it. And the new one actually required less effort and I could stand more upright. So it was easier on my back, but it was different. Interesting. And, yeah. Because I, I, have we have a bent shovel and we have straight shovels and I would not tell you that I use them differently. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, but my awareness of how I'm shoveling obviously obviously is not <laughs> the same as your awareness of shoveling because I would never have made that distinction that I am shoveling differently with the bent handled shovel versus the straight handled shovel. It might be because you're just evolutionarily more adaptable to to those things and I'm not. <laughs> or my back is just so worn out it doesn't really matter anyway. But my thought is that it, for some people, uh, those Luddites like me had to get, it took me time to make that change to figure out how. And I don't know if the designers took that into consideration. They certainly took it, took the, the aspect of we're going to make it easier for people, make it easier on their backs to do the snow shoveling with this new bent handle design. So they were thinking about the impact, but they weren't so much thinking about how are we going to help the new users use these the, the, there was no instruction. There was no, hey, if you if you you know you should check out this tutorial on YouTube. Uh, th- this or might a simple help you. infographic that shows, hey, yeah. this is the best way to use this to save your back. Because that would have maybe made me more aware. Mm-hmm. And, and now that you've mentioned this, next time it snows, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to try different the two different shovels and see mm-hmm. if one is is very different than the other. But but to that point. Are the you know we think about design, and you can make a design change, but if people aren't aware of it, such as me, I mean, I'm aware. You definitely can tell the the, the bench shovel looks very very different than the straight straight shovel. It looks funky and weird and and different pieces. But to be aware of how to use it or the benefits of that in doing it properly, designers sometimes need to be thinking about. How are you communicating that information yes. to yeah. the consumer, the end user, who is going to then do it? Because if you don't, you may end up getting a consumer like me 
who goes, uh, I don't see any big difference in this. I'm maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I don't see that. So I think the, 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 the last two shovels that we bought were not bent, bent, uh, handled ones. They're, they're straight oh. edge ones. Cause we, um, that's not what we, I, I haven't seen any difference. And I am like, why wow. am I paying extra for that? And different pieces. And it might so, be because you're not using the bent handle properly and you're not seeing any benefit. Or it. or it, that the benefit hasn't been primed in my awareness yeah. so that it is something that I'm even paying attention to. Because at that, that point, it, am I focused in on my back or am I focused in on just getting the snow off of the ground and doing it quickly, you know, all those things. I, I, you know, and again, you can think about this. We're talking shovels here, but I think there are a vast, any type of product that is out there that comes with any type of change and expected change in how people are using it probably needs to have some aspect of communication. I know in the world that, that we work in, right. On, in working with companies around incentives and when they make a, a change to their incentive plan, a key piece of that is the communication because you have to explain not only what that change is, so how people are earning their incentive and what they need to do differently, but and this is a big piece that we always talk to our clients about. You have to under, you have to explain why and why this change has been done and the impact that it will positively, as much as you can, say it's going to have a positive impact on on the end user, the people who are out there selling, that is key. Because if you don't do that, you get this either people who who go back and, and kind of think that this is the old way of doing things. Right. They don't make the, the behavioral changes that they need. Or you get this angst because people are making kind of intuitive judgments on why this was being changed. And those aren't always positive for the company. So. Yeah. Well, the natural outcome of communication is misunderstanding. So I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, exactly. So I got a question for you. Do you think that, because uh, Amy brought this up, do you think that behavioral science should be separated out as separate jobs in the corporate world or integrated into things like marketing and human resources and sales and all that kind of stuff? Well, we've talked about this in other episodes and we talked about this movement that it behavioral science is being more integrated into these different pieces. That being said, uh, you know, prior to this conversation on the, that we're recording, we had a, our own conversation about this. And I think there's something to be said about having a, you know, Amy was talking about this, definitely having this in a research piece, right? You need that. You need to have behavioral science being researched at, at an yes. academic component. Um, I also think that there is a value in, yes, integrating behavioral science throughout the organization, but I think there is a value in having behavioral science as its own entity to look at how this organization is using it, not at that surface level. Again, integrating behavioral science into a marketing team you're going to have a surface level understanding of behavioral science, maybe down to the next level, but I don't know if you're going to have a fully expert in behavioral science and understanding all the nuances and, and different aspects where if you have that person inside of the organization, 
There's a contextual component, as we've talked about, a, a, a behavioral science intervention that works in company A may not work in company B because of some contextual differences or nuances. Yeah. Within department A and department B in an organization, it may be different and you may need to adjust. And I think the the, the world is getting such that we can Google anything. You know, I don't have to look, I I I have uh, uh put in a dishwasher uh just recently by looking out at YouTube videos and and watching them put the YouTube, you know, a YouTube person explaining how to put a, a dishwasher in. And so I did that. Did I have an expertise in in installing a dishwasher? No. Did it take me a lot longer than a plumber to come in and do it? Yes. Did I get it done? Sure. And the implications of, of doing it wrong with other people, especially people that you work with, are significantly greater than just whether the dishwasher works or, or, or not. I could always call a plumber, you know, after the fact. And yeah, I might have to pay a little bit more because I messed things up, but I didn't mess up people and different pieces of this. Um, and and this, the, the, our world is just getting to this, right, where you can't just look at a YouTube video and have this really good knowledge of behavioral science. It doesn't work that way. There, it's too many contextual differences. There's too many aspects of it that are just dependent upon uh, so many number of factors. That being said is why I think that there needs to be a behavioral science person dedicated to that role in most larger organizations. So, And for the time being, for in, in the current world that we live in, that makes a lot of sense to me. My hope is that in the future, behavioral science is more deeply integrated into disciplines like sales and marketing and human resources in corporate environments without just going well beyond the, oh, we read Predictably Irrational in college, and so we're adequately, you know, juiced up to do all the behavioral science. I, I think it needs to be much more than that. It really needs to be a deeper um, integration so that the HR uh, VP is the one who says, hey, we should do an RCT on this. We should actually do a study. Before we actually act on this, we should test it uh, rather than uh, needing, and we do now, we currently do need to have someone who stands up and says, no, wait a minute, let's think about this more seriously. But in the future, I'd like to imagine a time when we, when the VP of HR says, have we done an RCT? Have we actually given some consideration to how this is going to impact the people who get the intervention versus those who don't? All right. So I'll ask you this question, Tim. Understanding human dynamics and emotion and the way that we operate, do you think, is there a logical progression at some point in the far off future, many, 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 many years from now, <laughs> that we would ever get to that point where uh, HR executive, and I'm, in general, I, I'm, there's always going to be exceptions, right? But in general, that HR executives, sales executives are going to be so immersed and so deeply ingrained in behavioral science that that is going to be just the standard. Do, do you think that will happen? You're you're trying to prime the witness just for the <laughs> sake of, of calling that out. And yes, I do. I actually do because, and I look to history as HR executives in say the 1930s. First of all, 
HR executives didn't even exist in the 1930s. Right? It was it, who the hell cared about what what the employees felt or what they thought. Right? We're still living off of off of Hawthorne's, uh, you know, the Hawthorne model and Frederick Taylor and just people who should be just damn glad to have a job. Today, we've come a long way from that where HR executives actually care about employee engagement scores. And they think about, well, what can we do? And I think the next evolution in that, now, and it might take many, 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 many years, but I think that there is something ahead that we could look forward to where where the VP of HR is the is the one that says, let's think about the way we're going to roll this out by doing a controlled test. And let's think about the behavioral science behind it. All right. Uh, we can, we can, uh, you have a better faith in humanity than I do. Cause well, I, right, I, just I, will right agree, now. I, I will, I will agree that they may go, let's do a, 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 a RCT, but that's to, that's not because they fully necessarily understand the be all the deep behavioral science behind it. It's more to cover their freaking ass because, <laughs> you know, that's become the new norm. Like you have a, you have a engagement survey going out because every other company has an engagement survey going out. And if you don't, all of a sudden you look, you, you don't fit that social norm. So uh, uh, two different Okay, uh, you know. Captain Dystopia. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we want to groove on? Well, then we just talk about trust because oh. we're talking about trust. So do we trust this to move forward? I, uh, yeah. I, it, trust is really important. And I think it's one of those aspects that we have to, as, as Amy said, we have to, it's critical to develop trust between the product and users and then to maintain it. That yeah. I think if, if you can take one piece of this entire conversation out, that would be one that, wow, you really need to think about that. If you're a designer, if you are a product manager, if you are an executive in an organization, it's building that trust is so critical, so vital to a successful product, service, whatever it is. It's kind of like, can people trust us to have wit witty banter and you know fun conversations? <laughs> Well, we have to demonstrate it. We have, we have to, to demonstrate it every damn time, which is many, <laughs> many, 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 many times over the past three years. So, yeah, and more to come, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, um, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I think that it's a very important aspect that marketers fail to take into consideration. I think on some level they marketers tend to come to their job believing that the consumers, the the users that they're selling to are automatically going to trust whatever they're going to do. And that's a big blind spot that needs to be addressed, mm -hmm. especially in, in the world that we live in today where there is, where distrust is on the increase in, oh, in my, my perception, God. right? Well, mistrust in organizations, in in government, in uh, institutions uh, across the board. It, mistrust in our neighbors, if they have uh, a different political sign in their yard, right. all of these things are, are on the increase. I would agree with you there. Yeah, okay. Uh, is I think that I think that wraps up our grooving session, right? I think okay. it wraps it up, so people should just hang on. We, we do have a bonus track coming up. Hey, 
Hey Groovers, this is Kurt with a bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Amy focused on her book and that because all physical products require some sort of behavior change, we talked about the need for designers to integrate behavioral science into their work. We agree and believe that behavioral science should continue to be studied separately from things like marketing and HR and product design. But Tim and I disagreed on if that gets integrated uh, into organizations as separate or just as part of our everyday work. We also talked about trust and how companies who want people to trust them and trust their products should tell customers why they should trust them. And they should do it in more ways than just the legal fine print in the terms and conditions. On the whole, product designers and product marketing have a long way to go when it comes to trust. And lastly, we spent a fair amount of our discussion with Amy on motivation. We know that the fundamentals of motivation are universal, but the most effective product marketing is based on more idiosyncratic ways of motivating customers. This reminded us of concepts developed in the late 1990s around one-to-one -one marketing and the idea of targeting messages to individuals. We have the technology to make that happen today, and we think that companies who invest in this approach will do better than those who don't. All right, for our groove idea for this week, we'd like you to think about an exercise Amy described as circles of me. We'd like you to give it a try as a way to prioritize relationships instead of making it about product development. We think you could use it to clarify what and who is important to you in your life. Use this as a tool to remind yourself of who and what is most important to you so you can better focus your time and energy on them. And so Amy suggested that you draw concentric circles and at the center of all of the circles is me or you in this instance. From there, you who fits into the next ring? What are the things that you hold dear enough to be in the ring right next to me or you? Amy talked about people, places, and institutions that are important to our daily lives that might go there. These are the people who we rely on or who rely on us. These are the most dear people in our lives. Then in the next ring, we might think about the next layer that is just a little bit removed from that first ring. Who might go in there? What are the friends? Who are the acquaintances? Who are the people that we have different relationships that fit into that next ring out there? And obviously it goes beyond that and you can keep getting in more circles and more circles and more circles. Many, many, many circles as we like to say. All right, well folks, that wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves. And as always, we hope you stay safe, stay in touch and go out and find your groove this week. Mm -hmm.